0: And if you will, take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 36 in just a moment. We'll read through the end of the chapter there in verse 47. Again, the book of Acts chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 36. Most of you uh, that have somewhat of a working knowledge of your Bible know what Acts chapter 2 is all about. It is the description uh, through the uh, work of the Holy Spirit in Luke that He would bear witness, that He re- record for us the details surrounding, and we can say this in a number of different ways, uh, the surrounding the birth of the New Testament Church, uh, the coming or the dawning of the uh, New Covenant Age, or we can simply say the new work, the more powerful and personal and universal work of the Spirit in the day of the church. All of those things are apt ways of referring to this day that we remember as the day of Pentecost. One of the things uh, for us as Bible readers, as Bible students, that makes the book of Acts difficult for us, and many times a a lot of other places in the Bible makes, makes it difficult for us is the Bible many times tells us this is what happened. And sometimes it doesn't say, now this is not normative for the balance of history, okay? And so there were a great many things that happened on the day of Pentecost and subsequent to the day of Pentecost that I believe were definitively associated with that unique time in God's economy, God's working, God's revelation of himself through Christ to the world. Uh, But it also tells us a great deal about how we are to continue uh, to serve the Lord and to proclaim His gospel and to live together in this thing we call the New Testament church. And so if you will, uh, begin reading with me as we think about the work of the Spirit, the work of the Word, and again the ordinances, plural, two ordinances, that God has given us uh, for use in His church. Again, Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All the who believed were together and had things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved pray with me father once again we thank you for your truth uh, for the testimony Uh, to your power and your grace in our world. We thank you that the gospel is still true and it's still effective in bringing people to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray today that you would give me the words, that you would have these people here, and that your Spirit would apply these things to their hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2 finds the apostles doing exactly what Jesus had instructed them to do upon his ascension. Namely, they were to wait until the time that his spirit would come and inflame and empower them to take the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the Son of God entering into our world, living Dying on the cross for our sin, being raised from the dead on the third day, and then ascending to the Father. They were to take that specific message into the world, proclaim it near and far to, to everyone and anyone who would give to them a hearing for the salvation of souls. And so as they were waiting, we're told that this supernatural phenomenon, described as tongues of fire, came upon them and they begin to speak, they begin to speak in languages that they did not know. Now, I'm going to go down one aside very quickly. What happened at Pentecost? They spoke in languages that people that were gathered around them understood as their native tongues. They were not speaking gobbledygook, okay? And so any claim to the reclamation of this Pentecostal spirit that is based on gobbledygook, beware. Be very aware of that and so they were speaking in these tongues and evidently there was quite a bit of celebration and ecstasy because the indictment was what these men are drunk these men have drank too much wine and I've got to believe Peter replied to him a bit tongue-in-cheek Nah, it's only about nine in the morning it's too early for that and so uh, again there was great deal of enthusiasm On their part and peter begins to preach he begins to explain this is what has happened joel the prophet said that in the last days the spirit of god would become come uniquely and powerfully upon the people of god and they would speak boldly in his name and then he began to prove that Jesus indeed was the Christ, that that the Old Testament scriptures, and you see a number of citations from the Psalms that spoke hundreds of years before the, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ to the reality of who he was and what he would come to accomplish. And essentially Peter says this, this is the Jesus, this is the Messiah that God has promised, the son of David, the rightful heir to the throne. He came into the world and you murdered him. And God, fulfilling his promise made to his servant David, did not allow his body to decay in the grave. The way you prevent a body from decaying from the grave is you raise it from the dead. And so the challenge then, if you don't believe me, go find the body. Okay? One one of the things, and I don't travel a a, a whole lot, I don't, you know, I, I have a job, I have to be here all the time, and it's 24 hours a day seven days a week, so I just don't get to leave, don't get out of the house much. But on a rare occasion, I find myself on an airplane. It's always interesting. And it's always interesting who you find yourself seated by, and I'm never, believe it or not, I'm never overbearing, obnoxious. I try to kind of read. If somebody wants to talk, we'll talk. If not, I'll leave them alone. But again, one of the things that I remarked to a young attorney that flew in beside me from Atlanta on Thursday is, you know, I'm I'm not a real smart guy, but I can tell you this. That that it's absolutely irrefutable that a man named Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago, and they killed him, and he walked out of the grave. They placed him in three days later, and there's no way to undermine the truth of that reality. And, folks, that proves everything. That proves everything. There's no way to undercut that reality. Why did these chicken-liver-hearted disciples, why did they go out and proclaim, this guy, you killed him, God raised him. They were hiding behind the women's skirts. Something dramatic happened. They saw their Lord walk out of a grave. And they were forever changed by it. As we are forever changed by this reality and so again upon the ascension of the lord jesus they're waiting for the spirit the spirit comes and peter preaches this powerful sermon we're told that three thousand people were saved that the 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 word was preached so powerfully the the spirit of god was present so powerfully that multitudes were saved they were they were so concerned look there in verse 37 this Aptly describes the work of the Spirit. They, those who heard, were cut to the heart. That is, that they heard the indictment. They understood the guilt for their own sin. They understood the repercussions. It hurt them. One of the real difficulties of presenting the gospel in our culture is the I'm okay, you're okay thinking of our world. Um, Nobody's guilty of anything. Everybody's good. Uh, uh, Nobody's done anything for which they should feel guilty. Uh, God's this great good guy up in heaven, and he gets me. But Let me tell you something. When the Spirit of God is at work, it'll hurt. As the great hymn says, it's grace that taught my heart to fear. But it, thank God he didn't leave me there, did he? It's grace my fears relieved. Cut my heart and made me aware I'm a sinner. But what did, Peter didn't leave him there. He proclaimed that for great sinners, there's a great Savior. How do you respond to this message? Now, again, the often misunderstood, misapplied, verse 238. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Again, we there's for the last couple of hundred years, there's been a group, a uh, very large group in America, and other other subgroups, church, the Church of Christ and other kind of affiliated denominations, that make the assertion that you're saved through bapti- baptism and you must be baptized. And again, they are in error, and I don't say that in a vacuum. Uh, I have a great number of cousins and aunts that are a member of that movement, and I have great concern for them. If you're trusting in that water, you're lost. If you believe that water saved you, you're lost. You must trust in the work of Jesus Christ. What do we ask them to confess? I believe this water is going to save me. That's not what they confess. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who died on the cross for me. And I'll lay I claim to what he did for me through faith. And so it's a great misunderstanding to think, That that baptism belongs to the essence of salvation. It is the confession of one's salvation. So let's look very, very very quickly at uh, three things from the text. I've already kind of ran a little bit far afield. But you see here, first of all, the centrality of the word. It wasn't, look at the tongues of fire. Wow. It was, hear the word of God. Hear the law of God first. You're guilty before a holy God. Folks, there's no salvation without the acceptance, the acknowledgement, the ownership of the reality. I am guilty before a holy God. I'm not okay and you're not okay. And so that's what they were cut about. That's what cut their heart. They were guilty. And so that must by necessity happen. We preach the law. We preach the the guilt. We preach for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. But we also preach the gospel. That there is a remedy. There is a remedy for the malady. There is a remedy for that which has devastatingly and incurably affected the heart and mind of every individual. And that cures Jesus Christ. That remedy is the gospel of a resurrected savior who has ascended to our heavenly father and so we believe in the power of the word of god you see some various texts uh listed there i would add uh to it uh paul's admonition to timothy in second timothy four and continuing to, for him to do what you need to always be innovative timothy you know Church people, particularly when they invent the iPhone and everything, they're they're going to be distracted. They're going to have so much glitz and glamour in their life that, that what you've got to do, you've always got to compete. You've got to come up with something bigger and better. He didn't tell him that. He said, "Let me tell you something. You preach the word, whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular. You preach the word. You preach the law. You preach the gospel. You preach the the tr- the terrible nature of the of sin." And the great promise and reality of the gospel of a crucified Savior. And it's through that powerful word that God works. That he brings salvation. Nothing has changed. Now again, whether you read your Bible off of an iPhone or a Kindle or whatever. No matter. But it's still that word that the scriptures declare is the imperishable seed of the new birth. Now, you know, the Bible opens with a a statement of the Word of God. In the beginning, God. And then God said what? Let there be light. And there was light. And and I like the way Paul kind of draws an analogy to that. tell you, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul speaks about the situation of the unbeliever. That the gospel is veiled. Their their minds have been blinded. Uh, They can't see the light. And then in verse 5 of chapter 4, the remedy is not to proclaim my wisdom, my excellence, my whatever. The remedy is we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And then verse 6 gives us the why. The 4 gives us the why. Verse 6, For God who said, what did he say? Let the light shine out of the darkness. He has shone in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God spoke. And through the power of his word, light came into being. And Paul wants there and that's kind of like that's kind of like what happens when you're saved Is the lights come on Someone this morning, probably Brad Aldridge Came in and turned these lights off. on He closed the circuit Would be, I think, the technical way of referring to it There are all kinds of resources You know, I grew up kind of adjacent to the Coosa River That flows through here That, that whole river system is latent power Just there to make these bulbs turn on. Now these bulbs this morning, they didn't didn't care if they got turned on or not. They could have cared less. In fact, they might have preferred to just not be turned on. But when that circuit was closed and that power flowed to them, guess what? Light and heat was produced by, by really a necessity. When the Spirit of God touches the dead soul of an unbeliever light and heat result we speak the word of God so that the spirit of God will illuminate the heart the mind bring life where previously there was death these bulbs do nothing until something from the outside works on their inside folks That's a a picture of salvation. Something from the outside, word and spirit, has to work on the inside of those who are dead in trespasses and sin, and it unfailingly produces life. Unfailingly produces life. So, the word was central to the day of Pentecost. We see there in verse 42, uh, those that were saved, they stayed there in Jerusalem. What did they do? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's that? That's the Word of God. That's the Word of God. The apostles' teaching is what's been preserved for us in these 27 books of the New Testament. So they were devoted to that. They were devoted to fellowship, to one another, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And many believe, and I'm kind of on the fence here, but I'm going to say that the breaking of bread probably refers to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That they repeated that. And it was often associated, typically associated in the early church, with a true fellowship meal. We think of it as just this little bit here. But they were together. They, they announced and pronounced their cooperation and their unity and their allegiance to the gospel through the initial act of baptism and the continuing act of the Lord's Supper. Because what? The Word and then the Spirit. They coalesced in their lives. Look at the second thing, the necessity of the Spirit. If the heart is not cut, The person is not converted. If the spirit does not work. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus in the passage that Josh read? You must. You must. It's not an option. You must be born again. It is of absolute necessity. You know sometimes it's really hard. As you think about the unbelieving world. What what can I say to them quickly and clearly? And you know not knowing their context and knowing how much they know or don't know it's really hard to know how much you know i mean if a person is an atheist you have to talk to them about the reality of god okay and that that's kind of a pre-evangelism but the, again the the simple and great truth is we need a savior that we are lost and undone apart from almighty god and there's a savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And we want to say to everyone you must you must be born again if if except a man be born again you will not see the kingdom of God. If the light and the heat does not come on in your life because of the circuit from the holy spirit has been closed so that the spirit flows into your life you will not see the kingdom of heaven. I've told you before It has two dimensions. First of all, it means when you die, you won't go to heaven. But it also means you don't get it. See, I'm looking at citizens of the kingdom of heaven right now. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven right now. I see it. I see the dimensions at work. I see the kingdom of darkness. When I hear of people that it is a fundamental right That we kill an unborn child. We cannot deny people that right. They must have it. I see the kingdom of darkness. But I I see the kingdom of light and life. And it's saying that all life is valuable in the eyes of God. And so, there's a necessity of the Spirit's work that we be born again. This washing, as Brad read of regeneration, this work that is by necessity of God. I can't raise myself from the dead. We've talked before. In baptism, we're identifying ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, His death burial, and resurrection is our death, burial, and resurrection. There, there is a unity uh, to that. And we're saying in a, in a real sense that I have died to myself and I have been born a new in Christ. We're raised to walk in the newness of life or the new reality of life that has been imparted to me. And so the work of the Word, the work of the Spirit, and the testimony of the ordinances throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the New Testament, they're tied together. Again, not these don't cause your salvation, okay? They don't cause your salvation. They're a testimony to your salvation. And notice how I, the last point this morning, and I've already missed Josh Evans' time. I was told that y'all got out at 1130 last week. What an an apostasy. What an absolute abomination. I got to talk to that young man. Yeah, I need to. But notice what I do. In baptism, we give testimony to the gospel, specifically the application of the gospel to our lives, that the work of salvation has been applied to my heart and mind by the Spirit of God. And so I follow Christ in obedience because he commanded us to obey him through this act of baptism. It is a means of grace, and I keep coming back to that. It's not a cause of salvation, but it is a very ordinary act. I mean, it's a a tub of water, folks. You know, kind of a fancy little chest, but it's a piece of fiberglass that's been molded to hold water. That's all it is. Ordinary. It's just water out of the sink back there in the kitchen. That's all it is. Ordinary. Ordinary. Bearing witness to the extraordinary. The extraordinary work of grace in the heart of an individual. Ordinary, extraordinary. We need to know the difference between that which is ordinary and that which is extraordinary. So it's a, a means of grace. It, it is, again, one of the ultimate encouragements to the church. God is still at work. God is still saving. The gospel, you know, I hear the term rather frequently, and I kind of gag on it. The word relevant. And okay, I, I get it to some extent, but let me tell you something. I'm not concerned about being culturally relevant. I'm concerned with being eternally relevant, and the Word of God will be eternally relevant. It is the standard by which all men will be judged, and so it'll always be. No matter what the culture judges, it will be relevant. Relevant. It is the anticipation of God's faithfulness. Now, when I am saved, I'm born again, okay? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Salvation is a foretaste of all that's ours, all that's promised in eternity. You, you, know, I, you know, there's T-shirts. I guess they're kind of old now. Life is good. I concur. Yeah, it's a fallen world. It's tough. But, but life is better than dying for the most part, Okay. Life is good, but let me tell you something. Whatever goodness there is in life, and I hope you have an abundant, abundantly good life, is, it, it, it only foreshadows heaven. And the gospel and the experience of salvation and this work of God in our heart is a powerful foretaste of eternity. And coming out of that water is not only the testimony that I've been born again, it is my hope And my absolute certainty that just as Jesus Christ was raised from an earthly grave, I too will be raised from an earthly grave one day. It is my belief and it's my conviction that God will ultimately fulfill His promise that one day what I have in foretaste, I will have in full taste. That I will have it all when I see Him. And so I anticipate God's faithfulness. And then the final thing that applies to both baptism and the Lord's Supper is a time of sober examination. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that in the Corinthian church evidently some people had died because they came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, either unconverted or believers who were not dealing appropriately with their own sin. But he says, y'all gone to sleep, which means what? You died. So these things are, 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 are very important, and they're very sober aspects of life in the church. And God says, God's word says to us, examine yourself, examine yourself, examine yourself. Before you step into this baptistry, examine yourself. You know, I had a pastor acquaintance one time. They had a portable baptistry, evidently, kind of like ours He said, we load that thing on the pickup truck, we take it to children's camp. If they want to make a decision, we baptize them right there to seal it in their hearts. I'm like, what? Doing what? Listen, we don't rush people through the waters of baptism. You need to think about it. That that water will stand as a witness against yourself if you've done it frivolously. If you've done it superficially. It'll bear witness, just as these elements will bear witness against you if you've taken them superficially, if you've taken them casually. That's why we're reminded constantly, let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. As, have the lights come on in your hearts and minds. Has, has, can you, can you do you have the deep sense that just as a natural result of the work of the Spirit and the Word in my life, there's light and heat. When that electricity hits that light bulb, that's what's produced. Light and heat. It, you know, it's just a law of nature. When the Spirit of God touches the heart of people, when they're converted, when they're born again, when they're saved, it produces something. And we bear witness to it. We bear witness to the reality as we gather around these elements in the Church of the Living. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to ask our deacons that are assisting by serving to come and move uh, to our front row. And uh, we're going to move forward in our worship service, continuing worship, uh, by the observation of the Lord's Supper. If you would pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your truth. Uh, Your truth revealed perfectly to us, uh, through Your Word, uh, bearing witness to the saving work of Your Son Jesus Christ, uh, informing us as to the work of the Spirit and uh, giving us understanding and causing us to believe this truth, uh, Lord, the, the the testimony of of these things that You have ordained, these ordinances that You've given to Your Church. Uh, that they would, until the time that you would return, that they would bear witness to your son Jesus, to his gospel, to the power of his salvation. Lord, as we enter in this time, I pray that we would do it soberly, Uh, Lord, that it would be a means by which we would be encouraged, that we would be reminded that indeed there's a Savior who came into the world. He lived and he died and he shed his blood my forgiveness and he was raised from the dead bearing witness to the truth and power of what he said and did and now he awaits the time to one day return and complete all that he has promised to his people bless us as we continue in worship we ask these things in jesus name